You're listening to the Chaz and Lou Show, the podcast where we delve deeper into all things true crime, scary, and things that scare us shitless. Join host Chaz and Lou as they share their thoughts and insights into some of history's most compelling events and mysteries. That's here on the Chaz and Lou Show. Hello guys and welcome to Wednesday's episode. Happy hump day. Yeah, happy hump day. And uh, part two of uh, the uh, Dennis Nielsen story case, whatever you want to call it. Right, I just want to ask you something. Is it it. Nielsen or Nielsen? It's Nielsen, so it's N-I-S-E-N. Oh, okay. Right, before we carry on, so as it's Wednesday, it means that uh, you've got was it three days, four days until our next episode, which is on, on Sunday? Mm-hmm. Sunday's episode, we're not sure what we're doing yet. No. But we could be teaming up with the Sipping With Snapped <gasps> Ooh, Girls. Yes. So, um, Hello, uh, girls, if you're listening. Yes, hello, girls. Oh, and I'm just like ruining our studio by getting caught up in headphones. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we could be doing a very special episode for the Sipping with Snapped Girls, and I'm very excited, providing that um, I think it's uh, Mary who I've been talking to mm-hmm. on um, Instagram. Instagram about it. So she's going to figure out how to work it on Zoom. I'm going to try and figure it out on this end. Yep. So we could be doing a joint episode with them. Yeah. I'm very excited. It's very exciting. So they will be our first guests on the show. Yeah, and I think we'll be their first guests as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I think we are. I think we are. Which is quite exciting. So I'm going to try and like, um, I need to download Zoom and stuff, get a bit, better camera. Yeah. Um, and stuff, because, uh, unless, are we, did we not say we would try and do it on our iPad? Yeah, I think we did, yeah. Because I think that might be better. Maybe. Anyway, guys, so that's that uh, bit of news to look forward to. Oh, yeah. Also, as well, um, if you follow us on social media, I am going to do... Um, I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if I remember to do this on Wednesday, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I've said this to you or not or, or anything. No, but I haven't. But how do you feel about... Um, if we get to a thousand followers, so we're currently what seven fifty? Uh, I don't know. Or seven sixty? I think we're about seven sixty. Yeah, so I think we're at seven seven hundred and sixty followers. I think. Yeah. If we get to a thousand followers, how do you feel about getting matching tattoos? Um. Yeah. We should do it. Okay. I think we should get our logo. Mm, okay. Just just the headphones. Just the headphones. Just the headphones. Okay, I'm up for that. Where are we going to have it? Oh, I don't know. I think I want it on my finger. Oh, no, I'd want it bigger than that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I think I might have mine on my finger. I've always wanted a tattoo on my finger, though. Weirdo. Why? don't know. I mean, I've already got one on my wrist. Might have it behind my ear. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll probably get the sack. Would you? No, probably not. My boss is quite chill. I was about to say. I mean, mine's they they don't really pop, they're not very really popular tattoos at my work, so it's fine. Yeah. Actually, I don't know where I would have it. You could probably put the headphones on your panda. No, I'm not ruining my panda. It's not ruining really it. It's giving your panda some headphones. No, okay. I don't want to do that. Oh, okay. Because then that means Aaron and that will have to do the same. Because then 
like if I put headphones on it, then I won't be matching to everyone else. Okay. So for everyone that doesn't know, I've got a tattoo. <laughs> of a panda. Of a panda. It was his first tattoo as well. Yeah. <laughs> of a panda. So basically the backstory to this is me and Jess were on holiday and um, we saw like a couple of uh, like tattoo pictures of pandas mm-hmm. and I love pandas. Pandas and giraffes, my favourite animal. Okay. Um, and I said to Jess, I was like, I really want a panda tattoo. So, so random. And well, it's it is to me. It's random because I didn't know you like pandas well, until today. I love pandas. So the kind of backstory to it is, is that like we, I always wanted a tattoo, but I was too scared to get one. And the, uh, Jess and my friend Aaron wanted to. Um, They're covered in tattoos as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They love they love getting tattoos, yeah, and they've they already got a couple of matching tattoos themselves. Yeah, they each have. Other. So. I said that I wanted to be involved in this whole matching tattoo shit because I wanted a tattoo and I wanted it to kind of like mean something. So the, there was four of us that got the tattoo. Jessie's sister, mm-hmm. who we call Boo. Yep. Um, she got the tattoo as well. And we got it um, in December, a couple of months after our holiday. Mm-hmm. But the reason why we got it was actually because it was... Um, it was a charity thing for i think it was like the hertfordshire air ambulance okay and they had this panda on the sheet right so and because obviously we wanted a panda tattoo Ah. so the four of us got panda tattoos so we've all got the same tattoo see i only have one tattoo and i have a lotus mandala on my back i thought you had more than one no just the one oh i want more do you yeah i think mum wants more as well yeah, mum's mum's tattoo's weird. Why is it weird? It's a butterfly on her hand. Well, bear, right, so uh, our mum, sorry to like not talk about what we're talking about today, but <laughs> r- random f- fact shit about our family. Our mum, well, how old was she when she got that tattoo? She must have been about 42. Yeah, mm, 45 maybe, the latest. Around, she was in her 40s. Yeah. So our mum doesn't like needles. She's proper needle phobe, but she really wanted a tattoo. So she goes and gets the tattoo. I think she did she went with um with Emily, didn't she? Yeah. Uh she goes and gets the tattoo at the tender age of forty something. Yeah. Um so it's quite later on in life to get a tattoo. And most normal people when they get their first tattoo, it's normally in a place where you can cover, so like on your arm or your leg or yeah. your shoulder or not a lot of people will, their first tattoo will be like a really shit Chinese symbol on their shoulder or something. <laughs> that probably means like Chow not what, or yeah, something. Not what they what it, what they think it means. No. But our mother, her first tattoo and the only tattoo she has is of half a butterfly on the side of her hand. I think it's really cute. It's really cute, but it's also really random. Do you think? Yeah. Because it's probably... She also copied Cheryl Cole, didn't she, a little bit? That's where she got it from. She really liked Cheryl Cole's tattoo. Yeah, because she's got one on the side of her hand, doesn't she? And I think hers is a butterfly. I think it is as well. But it's also very random because then her sister gets a tattoo who her sister's like uh, exactly 11 months older than her yeah um she also gets a tattoo up her hand a few years later <laughs> what nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> um and 
I didn't know. Um, I didn't know Aunt Debbie got a uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like it goes from like the, her finger. It goes all the what way. What is it off? I don't know. You don't know flowers, I think. Oh, mm. I've never seen it. Have you not? Oh no. yeah, she's yeah she's had it for ages. Um. But also as well, fun fact, our dad, so we all have one each in our family, don't we? And I'd just like to point out, I was the last one. Charlie was the last one to get a tattoo. And that was actually the reason why I wanted a tattoo, because I felt left out. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our dad also had... Um, I an, our He dad, was the first one of us lot to get a tattoo. He was the first one of us to get a tattoo, but I also hate his tattoo as why? well. Why? Because it's such a typical thing to this no i it's, don't it's think cu- it's cute it's cute he didn't know what he wanted and that's what he went for uh, so yeah so our dad has got on his upper arm he's got a heart colored in colored in with red which also ne- needs to be redone because the reds come away from the black which he can't do no because he's got loads of other problems now but he's got uh our mum's name chrissy along the top my name, Louise, down the other side. And then Charlie, down you the know other you side. you said that, it's such a pretty cringe. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> now that I've said it. Yeah, now you've said it, it's pretty cringe. I, I think it's also got an arrow through the heart as well, hasn't it? I don't know, I can't remember. I can't remember. Dad, Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me have a look at your tattoo. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. That's a bit odd. I think he did actually say to me, he was like, if, if he could, he would have somehow... Um, Added the kids' names into it as well. Yeah. Maybe we should just get some transfers for Christmas. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How funny. Anyway, right. That was our family history on tattoos. (laughs) We digress, as always. So, yeah. So, we're going to carry on from our last episode. Yes. About Dennis Nielsen. Mm. And I had left you with a very brief blurb on um, how he what he did to the bodies um and also how he got rid of them so uh so his first victim was uh it's really sad i thought i could hear music um so yeah so it's really sad his first victim was 14 year old stephen holmes okay can you hear that music hang on I think I'm hearing things. I think you are hearing things because I can't hear nothing. Okay. I can just hear the M11 in the background. <laughs> um. So yeah. So um. Fourteen-year-old Stephen Holmes. On the, uh. So this was on the thirtieth of December, nineteen seventy-eight. Uh. Stephen encountered Nilsson in the Cricklewood Arms pub. Um, where he, so Stephen had unsuccessfully unsuc- attempted to purchase alcohol because obviously he was underage, under underage. And according to Nielsen, he had been drinking heavily along. What? That makes no sense. No. Acor- so according to Nielsen, he'd been drinking heavily. So Dennis had been drinking all day. Yeah. Um. Oh wait, so. Dennis had been drinking yeah. all day. I think I, I think you've like probably like keyboard like turboed that one. I'm just yeah, probably. Oh, what is that? Stop do? leaning on that wire. Sorry, everyone. Um. So yeah. Uh. According to him, he'd been drinking all day, and um. Before he met Holmes, um. He 
before like before he left there. so he'd been home all day yeah. drinking and then by the evening he had the feeling that he must leave his house at all at all costs and seek some company right um he then so dennis then invited uh stephen back to his house in melrose avenue with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music believing stephen to be about 17 years old yeah but obviously he wasn't at, well, how um, old was he 14 what yeah well you weren't listening Huh? You weren't listening. You said he was underage, but I didn't know he was that underage. Yeah, I said at the beginning, I said, sadly, his first victim was 14-year-old Stephen Holmes. I must have missed that bit. I'm you sorry. weren't listening, were you? I was. Just, you were talking about music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so they end, they end up at... Uh, um, what are you doing? I'm just trying to find a comfortable thing to, like, put this. That sounded very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry about that. Basically, I'm leaning back on my chair and I'm just trying to find a place where to put the microphone. He's being lazy, basically. Shut up. Um. So, where was I? Sorry. So yeah, so they end they end up basic they basically end up at Dennis's house. They both drink too excessive, and then they both um fell asleep yeah the following morning nielsen um he so dennis nielsen woke up to find Stephen asleep on the bed on his bed and in um a subsequent written confession nielsen stated he was afraid to wake him in case he left me so this is where it it shows that dennis starts to have like this fear of people leaving him yeah so he caresses the sleeping youth um so after caressing the sleep sleeping youth, Nielsen decided Holmes was to stay with stay with me over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Well, what's with the posh accent? I don't know. I was. Do you think it sounded better? No, it doesn't. Um. So you can guess what happens. Uh, Dennis reaches for a necktie. He straddled Holmes as he strangled him into unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. He then washed the body in his bathtub before placing Holmes on his bed and caressing his body. So he, he'd killed him at this point. Um, this is the gross bit. He twice masturbated over the body before awaiting the passing of rigor uh, mortis to enable him to stow the corpse beneath the floorboards. Lovely. Yep. Um, home, Stephen's bound corpse uh, bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months. Ah, uh, did it smell? It must have done. Before Nielsen built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on the 11th of August 1979. That's grim. Yeah. Um, and reflecting on his killing spree in 1983, Nielsen stated that having killed Holmes, I caused dreams... I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime. Adding that he had started down the avenue started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Right, so his second victim uh, was on the 11th of October 1979. So he actually, he went a, almost a year 
between he was obviously probably still having a wank over the dead body under his floor uh, <laughs> what's wrong with you um yeah so on the 11th of october 1979 uh, he attempted to murder a student from hong kong uh, named, oh yes i think i remember this yeah one. named andrew ho whom he'd met in the St. Mar- Martin's Lane pub and lured to his flat on the promise of sex. So obviously Andrew was gay and he was like, come back to my place and we can have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> Nielsen's, Nielsen attempted to strangle Ho, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to the police. Nielsen was questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho decided not to press charges. Right. Uh, two months after the attempted murder of Ho, on the 3rd of December 1979, Nielsen um, encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden. Now, this particular person, so Kenneth Ockenden was very um, it was very famous, and this is the one that proper baffled police. Right, okay. Because um, Ockenden's family had actually reported him missing. Okay. So this happened, uh, this was in December, and they had spent, so he had been reported missing for fucking ages. So I think he was arrested in 1983, I think, yeah. or 1984. And so um, Ockington was, uh, he was actually over in England um, visiting relatives and he was from C- Canada and he was a student. So he was over the over in the UK visiting relatives and like going around the UK sort of yeah. visiting different tourist attractions and stuff. Um. They, uh, hold on. Nielsen invited Ockenden um, back to his apartment as they drank in a West End pub. Upon le- learning the youth was a tourist, Nielsen offered to show Ockenden several London landmarks, uh, an offer which Ockenden had accepted. He Nielsen then invited him back to his house on the promise of a meal and further drinks. The pair stopped off on an off-licence en route to Nielsen's residence and purchased whiskey, rum and beer, with Ockenden insisting on sharing the bill. Nielsen was adamant he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Ockenden, but he re- but recalled that he strangled the youth with the cord of Nielsen's headphones as Ockenden listened to music. He also recalled dragging the youth across the floor with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him, before pouring himself half a glass of rum and continuing to listen to music on the headphones with which he strangled Ockenden. That's ridiculous. I know. The following day, Nielsen purchased a Polaroid camera and photographed Ockenden's body in various suggestive positions. So this is what got me actually in the um in the document not it wasn't a documentary in the TV series because they mm. talk they talk talked about like they talked about blah, 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 blah. they talked about it in the series yeah and the thing is as well we'll come on to it as well but um so in the UK so if you're listening not from the UK um here. We, I don't know if it's the same elsewhere, but here in the UK, when you are arrested on a charge... Yeah. So if you're arrested on charge with little evidence, the police have um, 24 hours, I believe. Yeah, in America, isn't it? 48 hours. I think so. So it's 24 hours. It may have changed since since this happened, but back then they had 24 hours to interview him and get any information but they end up arresting him yeah while he's under the 24-hour uh remand i think it's called um 
but they end up interviewing interviewing him over 30 hours yes yeah. and it's 30 hours of confession yeah that he does so the thing is though so for example if they hadn't found any evidence and he confessed to all of this stuff once the 24 hours were up they could have released him yeah <laughs> anyway but wasn't he very like it was like, really hard to get information out of him no was it not we'll get to that point in a minute okay um so uh so after he'd Got the, he was he was uh, so he's photographing Ockenden's body in various suggestive positions, and um, he then laid Ockenden's corpse spread spread eagled above him on his bed. So he must have like had him on the ceiling or something, as he watched television for several hours before wrapping his body in plastic bags and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, Nielsen disinterred. Ockenden's body from beneath oh, so obviously brought him brought his body back up from the floorboards and seated the body upon his armchair alongside him as he himself watched television and drank alcohol so he used these these dead bodies as like his partner yeah um Charlie's not listening he's I, on his phone no I am listening actually um yeah so that went on for quite a few weeks um so his next victim was 16-year-old Martin Duffy on the 17th of May, 1980. So uh, Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead, Merseyside, who was who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge on the 13th of May after being questioned by British police transport police for invading his train fare. Oh. For the four days between arriving in London, he had slept rough near Euston Railway Station before Nielsen encountered the youth as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Duffy Nielsen... Um, Duffy, Nielsen recollected, was both exhausted and hungry and happily accepted Nielsen's offer for a meal and a bed for the evening. After the youth had fallen asleep in Nielsen's bed, Nielsen fashioned a ligature around his neck, then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest and tightened the ligature with a great force. Nielsen held his grip until Duffy became unconscious. He then dragged the youth into his kitchen and drowned him in his sink before bathing, bathing with the body, which he recollected as being the youngest looking I've ever seen. That's just fucked up. Mm-hmm. He is fucked up. He placed Duffy's body. Um, so he started off placing him in the kitchen chair, then upon the bed on which he had been strangled. The body was repeatedly kissed, complimented, and caressed by Nielsen, both before and after he masturbated, while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. Corpse. So he'd sit on his tummy and have a. Uh, yeah. No. Sorry, I did the action. Oh my god. Um. So for two days, Duffy's body was stowed in a cupboard before Nielsen noted, uh, noted signs of bloating. Therefore, he went straight under the floorboards. Nice. Mhm. So following Duffy's murder, Nielsen then started to be. 
he started to unravel so he began to kill with increasing frequency well he wasn't unraveling sorry he was still very like tight with what he was doing yeah but he started to do it more often before the end of 1980 he'd killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one other only one of these victim who victims who Nielsen murdered, 26-year-old William Sutherland, has ever been identified. So still, that we don't know who the other um, victims were. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Nielsen's recollections of the unidentified victims were vague, but he graphically recalled how each victim had been murdered and just how long the body had been retained before dissection. So this sick motherfucker, he knew what he'd done to these bodies. He knew how he cut them up. He knew what how he burned them, but he didn't know what their names were, or he couldn't remember what their names were. That's that's disgusting. Which you know, you know full well that if these people, so this is where a lot of there's a lot of like conspiracies around it, where they're not sure if um, he actually did kill those five victims because he doesn't yeah. know the names, so they're not sure if he's making it up or if it's actually a thing. They don't know whether or not he's lying. But the thing is, as well, oh, he's just a fucker. Just um, one uh, one identified victim killed in November had moved his legs in a cycling motion as he was strangled. I think that's one of the unidentified victims. So as he was being strangled, his legs were like going around as if he was cycling. Yeah. Um. Nielsen. is known to have been absented himself from work between the 11th and the 18th of November, likely due to this murder. So they reckon that I think what happened was, but because he was do- this a victim was doing the cycling murder, I think they might have hurt him, as in hurt Nielsen while right, he was okay. doing it. Um, another unidentified victim Nielsen had unsuccessfully attempted to resuscitate before sinking to his knees and sobbing before standing to expressively spit in his at his own image as he looked at himself in the mirror so he killed so that was another thing that he liked to do so he liked to kill people and then try and resuscitate them bring them back to life fucking weirdo yeah on another occasion he had laid in bed alongside the body of another um unidentified victim as he listened to cla- to the classical theme fanfare for the common man before bursting into tears i literally think that this bloke's well well he's not right in the head is he no so he had accumulated several bodies underneath his floorboards which then obviously what does that do it attracts insects and created a foul odor Obviously, he didn't wrap him up properly. No, but also as well, he lived in a flat. What the fuck did his neighbours think he was doing? I mean, I'm not being funny, but did he was he not on like the second floor as well? No, so that's his that's his other residence. So we're still talking about Melrose Avenue, where he was a ground floor flat. Right. Okay. All right. Um. So. Um. But yeah, my question is like the road that I live on is very quiet. Yeah. So I notice a lot going on yeah i i noticed there are particular cars that park in my street on certain days um and say for example you see your neighbor and they they come home with somebody and you never see that person leave their house or hear them leave the house yeah where the fuck do you think they're going mm-hmm. do you think they're going into the wardrobe to narnia or something <laughs> do you know what i mean though yeah. like if you're 
And I'm not saying that I'm a nosy neighbour. If there's uh, any neighbours in Lou Street that are listening <laughs> and you're taking people into their house and they're not coming out, she's on to you. <laughs> <laughs> but, do you. But do you know what I mean? Like, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, like, if you notice people, like, especially as he was taking a lot of people in and out of his flat. Yeah. Like, he was... And they ha- weren't leaving. Yeah. You'd find it really weird, especially as he was a very quiet person anyway. Yeah. Just a thought. Just a thought. But then again, it depends on what time of night this all is as well. Yeah, I suppose so. Or if it's during the day, or, you know, people could be at work when it's happening, people yeah. could be asleep when, that, when when it's happening, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Um, so, obviously, it was creating foul odour. It was probably emulating up through the top, the flat above him as well. And yeah. it was obviously worse in the summer months with the heat and everything. Yeah. So, he'd had all these bodies. So, I don't think he'd actually... Um, so, he'd had Ockenden's body in there. And uh, he got rid of him in the August. And I think that's when he got rid of the rest of them. Oh, so what, he, on the bonfire? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not being funny. That's the other thing. You're going to notice someone's putting stuff on the bonfire. Well, do you know what he did? What? He put, he got an old tyre, like a car tyre, and put them on top of that. So <laughs> my brain my brain goes in overdrive. So um, if someone's doing a bonfire, normally you smell, you can smell what's going on. Yeah. So what he was doing, he had these dissected bodies. I think they're in plastic bags, so you can see what it was. Yeah. So these just dissected body parts, and then he chucked a tyre on the top to cover the smell. Oh. Yeah. Oh. What am I doing? Uh, leaning on the wire. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, on occasions when Nielsen disinterred victims from beneath... A, so when he, so what he'd do is he'd keep these bodies under the floorboards yeah. for months on end and then he'd take them out. Um, and he noted that the bodies were covered in pu- pupae, so like the... Um, things before they turn into maggots oh yeah and they obviously the bodies then become they become infested with the maggots so like the pupae were like it's almost like the baby before it then hatches um oh this is gross some of the victims heads had maggots crawling out of the eye sockets and mouths he placed deodorants beneath the floorboards and sprayed insecticide about the flat twice daily but the odor of decay and the presence of flies remained yeah. In the late 1980, Nielsen removed the dissected bodies of each victim killed since December 1979 and burned them upon a communal bonfire he had constructed on waste ground behind his flat. To disguise the smell of the burning flesh of six dissected bodies, he placed an old car tyre. Three neighbourhood children stood to watch the bonfire. Nielsen later wrote... Do you know what? It'd be interesting to hear their stories. I know. Nielsen later wrote in his memoirs that he felt it would have seemed in order if he had seen these three children dancing around a mass funeral fire when the bonfire had been reduced to... uh, When the bonfire had been... Sorry, this should have been a full stop there. (laughs) (laughs) When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinders, Nielsen used a rake to search the debris for any recognisable bones... Noting a skull was still intact, he smashed it to pieces with his rake. What the fuck? I know. So when we were, um, when I was watching the um, tapes, they interviewed one of the women who was part of the search 
bit of the garden right. of that property and she said it was insane so um what so what he'd done is he, i think he ended up having two bonfires i think in this particular garden yeah. before he moved and um when they were searching through the garden she was like she she, she said in a lot of the things that we search through or we go through like when we're like because they use like um you know when you go to Legoland, sorry, it's a bit weird. You know when you go to Legoland and you go to like the bit where it's like the sand. You're doing the and gold then, thing. Yeah, and you have yeah, like yeah. the little tray and you shake it and you yeah. and it's like almost like a sieve. They had them right. and they would do that through the garden and the grass and the mud and everything. And she like the first couple of days when they were doing it when he was arrested because it was in the winter, uh, the ground was like rock solid. Yeah. But she said every time they'd go through, they'd do like a square foot or a couple of square foot at a time. They'd go through it and it wouldn't just be like one bone. It would be like, because she said, when you do things like that, you'd find one and then a couple of hours later, you'd find another. And then a couple of hours later, you'd find another. When they were doing that particular address, it was every couple of minutes. So like every five minutes, it'd be like, found another one, found another one, but they could never get any proper identi- identity from it. Do you think nowadays they might be able to? No, because, um, yeah, I don't think they would. It would only be from, like, DNA. Yeah. It'd only be, like, a DNA thing. But you can't, uh, there isn't a lot of, yeah, I'm not quite sure if they would be able to identify them now. Hmm. Mm. I mean, I'm not being funny, but they did identify the bedsit killer after 33 years with their technology today. Yeah, that's true. Um, So on or around the 4th of January 1981, Nielsen encountered an unidentified male who he described for investigators as an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scot at the Golden Lion pub in Soho. He was lured lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. Right. Right. Um, After Nielsen and his victim had consumed several beverages, Nielsen strangled him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Nielsen is known to have informed his employees he was ill and unable to attend work on the 12th of January in order that he could dissect both his victims and another identified victim, he had killed approximately one month earlier. By April, Nielsen had killed two further unidentified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square and the other he described as a Belfast boy, a man in his early 20s, approximately 5 foot 9 inch in height, whom he had murdered sometime in February. In relation to the first of these three identified victims, he later casually reflected, end of the day, end of the drink, end of the person, floorboards back, carpets replaced, and back to work on Denmark Street. Mm -hmm. So that was like his little rhyme he had in his head. Oh. Fucking weirdo. The following month, Nielsen removed the internal organs of several victims stowed beneath the floorboards. He discarded the innards both upon the waste ground behind his flat and in his household rubbish. Oh. I know. Ugh. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, whom Nielsen discovered slumped against the wall outside his home on the 17th of September 1981. 
When Nielsen inquired as to Barlow's welfare, he was informed the medication Barlow was prescribed for his epilepsy had caused his legs to weaken. Nielsen suggested that Barlow, Barlow should be in hospital and supporting him, walked him to, into his residence before phoning for an ambulance. Right. Okay. The following day, so Dennis had sent this bloke, he'd sent Malcolm off into ambulance off to hospital. The following day, Barlow was released from hospital uh-huh. and returned to Nielsen's home. Apparently to thank him, as you would. Like yeah. if someone had helped me, I'd be like, thank you so much. I'd probably turn up with like a bottle of beer or something. Yeah. Like, thank you so much for helping me. It's so kind of you. Um, and he was invited in. And after eating a meal, began drank, drinking rum and coke before falling asleep on the sofa. Nielsen manually strangled Bartlow. I keep saying Bartlow because that's like a place <laughs> around the corner from where we live. <laughs> Nielsen manually strangled Bartlow as he slept before stowing his body beneath the kitchen sink and the following morning. So he sent this guy off to a hospital to save his life. Yeah. And then he killed him the next day. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? <laughs> Don't you think? Don't you think? In mid-1981, Nielsen's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Nielsen to vacate the property. Nielsen was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted an offer of £1,000 from the landlord to vacate the residence. Mm -hmm. Vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens, so that's the most famous address that um, people would have heard of, uh, in the Muswell Hill District in North London on the 5th of October 1981. The day he before he vacated Melrose Avenue, Nielsen burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims he had killed at this address upon a third and final bonfire he constructed in the garden behind his flat. Again, Nielsen ensured the bonfire was crowned with an old car tyre to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Uh, Nielsen had already dissected the bodies of four of these victims in January and August and needed to complete the dissection of Barlow in this third bonfire. For this third bonfire. That's ridiculous. I know. There was another... um, I don't know if it's here... I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute if I remember. Uh-huh. Right, so now we move on to 23 Cranley Gardens, or 23D. Hold on, let me just sort my headphones out because my hair's got my head in. Ugh. Nielsen had no access to a garden in this uh, flat, cause, so and he resided in the attic flat, so he was on the top floor. Yeah. Um, he was unable to stow any bodies beneath the floorboards, because obviously... If he had done, they would have seeped through. For almost two months, any acquaintances Nielsen encountered and lured to his flat were not assaulted in any manner, although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Hobbs on the 23rd of November 1981, but stopped himself from completing the act. Why did he stop himself? I don't know. Did he not say? I don't know. I think... um, I'm not sure, actually. In March 1982, 
Nielsen encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Leicester Square. Howlett was lured to Nielsen's flat on the promise of continuing drinking with Nielsen. There, both Nielsen and Howlett drank as they watched a film before Howlett walked into Nielsen's front room and fell asleep in the bed, which was in the front room at the time. One hour later, Nielsen successfully attempted to rouse Howlett, then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at Howlett before deciding to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle in which Howlett attempted to strangle his attacker, so Howlett tried to, like, get him by the neck. Yeah. Um, Nielsen strangled Howlett into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room, shaking from the stress of shaking from the stress of the struggle in which he had believed he would have been overpowered so this bloke who's been who's strangled several victims by now was shaken because he was strangled it's like mate now you know how they felt yeah fucking prick (laughs) (laughs) on three on three occasions over the following 10 minutes nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to kill his victim after noting he had resumed breathing, before deciding to fill his bathtub with water and drown him. For over a week following Howlett's murder, Nielsen's own neck bore, fin- victim- bore the victim's finger impressions. Right. So he had like probably had like bruises yeah. on his neck. <coughs> Excuse me. In May 1982, Nielsen encountered Carl St- uh, Stoter, a 21-year-old gay man. I d- again, I don't know why they have to, like... Oh, because he's getting... Like, anyway. Yeah. As the youth drank at the Black Cat... No, pla- Black Cab... Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> As the youth drank at the Black Cap pub in Camden, Nielsen engaged Stoter in conversation, discovering the youth was depressed following a following relationship. Now, mm-hmm. this guy was in the docu- in, in the TV series. Oh, was he? <laughs> After plying the youth with alcohol, Nielsen invited Stoter to his flat, assuring his guest he had no intention of sexual activity. Mm-hmm. At the flat, Stoter consumed further alcohol before falling asleep upon an open upon an open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled with Nielsen with Nielsen loudly whispering, Stay still. Mm-hmm. Oh dear. So in the um so in the in the T V series, and it also says here as well, in the subsequent testimony at Nielsen's trial, Stoter stated he initially believed Nielsen was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag. Uh, before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. So, um, apparently, Nielsen had said to him to, might don't get caught in the zip, is what he'd said. Yeah. He then um, vaguely recalled hearing water running before he was immersed in the water and that Nielsen was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in rising his head above the water, Stoter gasps, gasped the words, I can't talk, gasped, the words no more please no more before nielsen submerged stoter's head beneath the water believing he'd killed him nielsen seated the youth in his armchair then noted his dog so he had a dog i don't even remember yes yeah yeah, yeah. um bleep um her name was licking stoter's face nielsen realized the tiniest thread of life still clung in the youth he rubbed stoter's limbs and heart to increase circulation 
um, and he covered his body in blankets, then laid him upon his bed. When Stoter regained consciousness, Nielsen embraced him. He then explained to Stoter he almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and then, and that he had resuscitated him. Over the following two days, Stoter repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. So he was still with Niels in Nielsen's flat. Shit. When Stoter was, um, had regained enough strength to question Nielsen as to his recollection of being strangled and immersed in cold water... Nielsen explained he had become caught in the zip of the sleeping bag following a nightmare and that he placed him in cold water as you were in shock. Right. Nielsen then led Stoter to a nearby rail sta- railway station where he informed him that he hoped they might meet again before Nielsen bid him farewell. So he he survived. That's the He uh, let w- that one go. Yeah. So I think there was two survivors, I think. Yeah. Um, but the second one... Jesus Christ. What did I do? He l- I think he just like lent on the thing a little bit too much. Sorry, everyone. So the second one that was actually in the TV series, um, so he was, I think he was one of his victims. Yeah. But the guy had got paid for his story or something in the newspaper or something right. like that. Um, so they couldn't, co- they couldn't like yeah. keep his story, if that makes sense. Um, but also as well, this young guy, Stoter, he, um, for months, thought it was a dream. Oh, really? Yeah, and he'd gone into like um, like a, not a rehab centre, but like a place for people who suffer with mental health. Yeah. Not, um, what are they called? Oh, fucking hell, Louise. <laughs> Like a, you know, there's, they do like ha- homes and stuff for people where they have like intense therapy sessions yeah. and stuff. So he'd actually gone to stay there in like one of these houses um, to get this intense therapy session. And he kept like, pe- like his therapist was saying, oh no, it was a dream that you had. And so then he believed himself as a dream. Yeah. And then eventually when he got interviewed by the police, because um, Nielsen had told the police there was one that got away. Yeah. But he couldn't remember what his name was. And when the police were interviewing him, he had said, um, he, so like he told me a story about being caught in a zipper and obviously from Mavro and all this stuff and the dog and everything. Yeah. And then the police officer said, what did it feel like when you were in the water? And this kid was like, I've never told anyone about the water. And he was like, so this guy was actually trying to kill me. And the police officer was like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, um, mm. so three months after Nielsen's June 1982 promotion to the position of executive officer in his empl- in his employment, he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen attempting to hail a taxi in Shaftesbury Avenue. Allen attempted Nielsen's. Oh no! Sorry. Alan accepted Nielsen's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal. As the case had been with several as the case had been with several previous victims, Nielsen stated he could not recall the precise moment he had strangled Alan, but recalled, recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelette with the full intention of murdering him. Alan's body um was retained in uh, yeah, retained in the bathtub for a total of three days oh. before Nielsen began the task of dissecting the body upon the kitchen floor. 
Nielsen was my question is right so he's cutting these bodies up on the kitchen floor in an attic flat yeah now the body contains about I don't know how many liters of blood but there's a fucking load of blood in our bodies uh-huh. where's all that blood going it, surely it's uh, how can it not the other thing that I want to know is that he's going off to work and coming back and someone's just laying in his bathtub dead I know it's bizarre how isn't are it? you okay with that I don't know um like would you not be like a bit cautious in the fact of yeah okay they may be dead but they might be they might be alive and they might hit you over the head do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's crazy um nielsen is also again to know uh to have known to be a two oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> he called in sick basically at work um on the 9th of october 1982 um and that was likely so he could complete the dis- dissection of Adam's yeah. body um, on the 26th of January 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by inqu- by acquaintances in the company of Nielsen, walking in the direction of a tube station. At Nielsen's flat, Sinc- Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in an armchair as Nielsen sat listening to the rock opera Tommy. Nielsen approached Sinclair, knelt before him and said to himself, Oh, Stephen, here I go again, before strangling Sinclair with a ligature constructed of a necktie and a rope. Noting crepe bandages upon each of Sinclair's wrists, uh, Nielsen removed these to discover several deep slash marks from where Sinclair had recently tried to kill himself. I I think I knew that. Mm Mm-hmm. Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead youth. Lovely. Mm -hmm. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him before kissing the youth's body on the forehead and saying, Good night, Stephen. Nielsen then fell asleep alongside the body. As he had been, as had been the case with both Howlett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the bar- bathtub. In a drawer beneath the bathtub. Oh, here's my selection of arms <laughs> and 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 toes. What do you think? Oh. Would you like a middle toe today? Oh, no. <laughs> Stop it. Just like, I know. Anyway. Um, where was I? The bags used to seal sink. <laughs> oh, I just want to say that I just went, I'm not eating, by the way. <laughs> Uh, the bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nielsen had bound upon Sinclair's wrists. Nielsen attempted dis- to dispose of the flesh, internal organs and smaller bones of all three victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dis- dissecting remains down his toilet. Nice. In a practice which he had conducted upon several victims killed at Melrose Avenue, he also boiled the heads Hands and feet. Why? Why has he boiled them? To remove the flesh of of these sections of the victim's bodies. 
apparently i can't remember if it was in the tape i think it's in the tapes one um where the so it wasn't the main police officer that had arrested him but it was the one of the ones that was with him yeah. to sort of question him um when they went to question him again when he was in custody they asked him why did you boil like how did you boil it and apparently he had like a massive like big silver pot on his hot on the hob of his because obviously this was back in the day before like electric yeah. kettles and apparently he would just leave it to like boil or like simmer um for hours so the skin would just kind of fall off and then um when he wanted a cup of tea he just take that pot off the hob and use the same hob to make a cup of tea because it was like a one of them whistling kettles you know oh that's grim i know ah that's fucking grim i thought you were gonna say that he would he would get the water out the pot and use it for his cup of tea he, he could, oh sorry Jesus i did it Christ again made me jump sorry um he could have potentially potentially put a spout on the front and used it as like a tea urn oh, <laughs> <le> <laughs> So, this is where... Do you know what? He probably... I think he wanted to be arrested at this point because he could have potentially carried on. Yeah. Because on the 4th of February, 1983, he wrote a letter of complaint to his to his estate agents complaining that the drains at Craney Gardens were blocked. What a dickhead. That he had blocked himself. What an absolute prick. And that the situation for both him... For both for both himself and the other tenants at the property was intolerable. So he's writing a letter of complaint saying, this is not good, this is intolerable and I can't handle it and it's unhygienic for me and my uh, my neighbours. It's your own fucking fault for putting dead bodies down your bloody toilet, you absolute dickhead. Yep. Um, but the funny thing was as well, the following day, so the day after, so the 5th of February, yeah. he refused to allow an equator acquaintance so a friend of his to enter his property and the reason being was that he'd begun to dismember De sinclair's body on the floor of his kitchen did he actually tell them tell them that, that no point? i think oh. he told the police that oh so this is where we go on to the discovery and the arrest okay, okay. so they were his murders were first discovered by a diner rod employee michael catron right diner rod Dino Rod. Is that company still going now, isn't it? Still going now. Still going strong. Well done, Dino Rod. Uh, so he had responded to the plumbing complaints made by Nielsen and other tenants of Cranley Gardens on the 8th of February 1983. Yeah. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Catron discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin. Oh. This is disgusting. Catron reported his suspicions to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler. As Catron had arrived at the property at dusk, he and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Fair enough, because yeah. it's going to be dark. Prior to leaving the property, Nielsen and fellow tenant Jim Olcock convened with Catron to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Catron, so the Dynawood guy, exclaim how similar the substance was in appearance to human flesh, Nielsen replied, It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, oh no. 
At 7.30 the following day, Catron and Wheeler returned to Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. Yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This aroused suspicions of both men. They become detectives. Yeah. Catherine discovered some some scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain, which linked to the top fl- flat of the house. Mm. To both Catherine and Wheeler, the bones looked like looked as if they originated from a human hand. So they're obviously like the small bones on the on the back of yeah. your hand. Both men immediately called the police, who, upon closer inspection, discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked like. Look to the naked eye like either a human or animal flesh in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsey, where pathologist David Bowden advised police that the remains were human. But that took a couple of... Um, so I think they'd arrested... I was just about to say David Tennant. No. <laughs> <laughs> where they'd, they'd arrested Dennis... Um, and it took about 12 hours for them to identify. Right. But he'd already confessed to everything. But they couldn't arrest him because there was no, like, proof. But if someone said to you, I've murdered someone, surely you'd get arrested now for that. It's hearsay, though, isn't it? you take that to a court and they'd go, well, this is all hearsay. There's no evidence. True. Um. Okay, so um, so the pathologist had also advised them that one piece of the flesh that they had um, was definitely human and it bore, it was from a human neck and it bore a ligature mark. Right. So that's when it kind of then got the ball rolling yeah. into arresting him. Upon learning the fellow tenants that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed belonged to Nielsen, Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Nielsen returned home from work. When Nielsen returned home, DCI Jay introduced himself and colleagues explained they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. Nielsen asked why the police were interested in his dra- drains and whether the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. Yeah. In response, Jay informed Nielsen that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Nielsen into his flat where they immediately noted the odour of rotting flesh. Nielsen questioned, further, Nielsen questioned further as to why the police were interested in his drains, yeah. to which he was informed the blockage had been caused by human remains. Nielsen <laughs> was shocked and he was bewildered, stating... Good grief, how awful. In response, Jay replied, Don't mess about, where's the rest of the body? Is this where it was like in my wardrobe? Yeah. Nielsen responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in the two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe, from which DCI Jay and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition. That was where it was coming from. Yeah. The officers did not open the cupboard, but asked Nielsen whether there were any other body parts to be found, to which Nielsen replied, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here, at the police station. 
He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to Hornsey Police Station. As he, escort- as he was escorted to the station, Nielsen uh, was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out of the window of the police car, he... I put care. <laughs> police car. He replied, 15 or 16 since 1978. Oh, my God. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being in that fucking car and you go... So, so come on, Dennis. Tell us, is it one or two? Like, how, like one or two, maybe three people. Yeah. Oh, you know, fifteen or sixteen, maybe. I would. I wouldn't have nothing to say. I'd literally just be like, say that again. Yeah. But the thing is, though, they've done the most stupidest thing ever by questioning him in the car. They should have waited until they got to the police station. I know. Um. That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers, accompanied by DCI J and Bow- Bowen to Cran, accompanied DCI J and Bowen to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsey Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing carious internal organs lovely the second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh so that's one of the ones he boiled Uh, a severed head and a torso with arms attached but hands missing both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat i don't don't like that word i hate that word that's disgusting right yeah so in an interview conducted on the 10th of February, Nielsen confessed there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living in his living room with other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. The dismembered, dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he only knew as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that, beginning in December 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Nielsen also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had escaped or on one occasion had been at the brink of death, but he had revived and allowed to leave his residence. So that's that Stoter one. A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on the 10th of February revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom and a skull, a section of torso and various bones in a tea chest. I mean, oh. What should, we, what should I keep in, keep in my in my bathroom today? Couple of legs, <laughs> you know, and the shoes. <laughs> uh, the same day, uh, Nielsen accompanied the police to Melrose Avenue. So this, so the police actually took him to his old address, yeah. where he indica- indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he'd burned the vi- the remains of his victims. Um. So this is where it kind of so. Obviously, a lot of these investigations, the press don't find out about it until somebody leaks it. Yeah. So, do you know what happens? The fucking Dynarod guy goes and contacts the Daily Mirror on the 10th of February and informed the newspaper of the ongoing search for human remains at Cranley Gardens. Oh, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. 
leading the newspaper to break the story and spark intense national media interest. Yeah. Right? Uh, So, by the 11th of February, reporters from the Mirror had obtained photographs from Nielsen's mother in Aberdeenshire, which appeared on the front page the following day. So the mother wasn't helping either. So she's like, oh yeah, I'll give you a couple of pictures of my kid. No problem. Um. Oh, okay, so it's not 24 hours. So under English law, the police had 48 hours. Oh, that's maybe what I was thinking about. Yeah, in which to charge Nielsen or release him. Assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey... On the floor of Hornsey Mortuary, Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those of on police files of Sinclair. At 5.40pm on the 11th of February, Nielsen was charged with Sinclair's murder and a statement re- uh, revealing this was released to the press. Formal questioning of Nielsen began the same evening, with Nielsen agreeing to be resent- re- represented by a solicitor, um, which he later, um, which before that moment, he actually said he didn't want one. Yeah. Uh, police interviewed Nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days in interviews which tot- totaled over 30 hours. Right. Uh, Sorry, I was just looking up to see what it was in America. Oh. Um, and it's the maximum amount of time you can uh, be in police custody without charges is 48 hours, not including weekends or legal holiday holidays. Technically, it can be up to 72 hours because of this. So you could get arrested on a Friday and then definitely not going to let you out till the Monday yeah. at the earliest. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to commit a crime, do it on a Monday. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nielsen was adamant he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you'll tell me that. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that this sick fucker, right? So he, he, in the tapes as well... He continuously said about how he was mistreated in prison. About he always he constantly complained about the food. He constantly complained about the living conditions. He constantly said, "What is the um, innocent and like uh, innocent until proven guilty?" He kept saying that. Yeah, but he was proven guilty. But the, right, so his his thing was he kept saying he kept banging on about being proven like guilty and all this shit so he was innocent until he got his trial so he should be treated like an innocent person until he was proven guilty at his trial and he just kept saying that he kept saying i should be treated with more respect because i'm innocent until proven guilty and then he kept saying to the police officers as well like in his tapes as well he kept saying oh you know they you know they need to um accept the fact like he tried to Use the whole like it wasn't premeditated murder yeah. and stuff like that. It was like spur of the moment. But in my like, in I my... think in, in a way he intentionally went to murder someone, but it wasn't planned because realistically, a serial killer finds a target and follows them for a little while. Um, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. I would probably say ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah. Like, they would see someone in, like, a cap or, like, someone like that. And they would stalk them and find the right time to yeah, pounce on them, pretty much. The, the thing is, though, is, for example, if you accidentally run over someone yeah. and you hit them with your car, you don't kind of get in your car and you go, oh, I know what I'm going to do today. <laughs> I'm going to hit someone in my car. Yeah, no, I know. But 
you know, it's like one of them where he was sat on the end of the bed and he was just like staring at them while they were asleep. And then he was like, mm, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, that's, yeah it's, it's bizarre. It's weird. Yeah. I mean... It's not intentional, but it is intentional. Yeah, it's weird. So I'm going to skip a lot uh, forward now in my notes because when I was right typing this up, it was actually a lot of repetitive stuff. Yeah. Because it's basically saying how he like dismembered the bodies and bathed them and all that shit. Yeah. So we already we already know that's what he yeah, did. Yeah. Um. So we're going to move on. So he was obviously um officially charged was me for the murder of Sinclair on the 11th of February and was tra- he was transferred sorry I've got hiccups <laughs> he was transferred to oh I've got hiccups <laughs> <laughs> so he was transferred to Her Majesty's Prison Brixton to be held on remand until his trial according to Nielsen upon being transferred to Brixton Prison to await his trial his mood was one of uh, resignation and relief with this belief being that he would be review- he would be viewed in accordance with law, as I was saying, as innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. Right. He objected to wearing prison uniform while on remand because, again, he was like, "They haven't said I'm guilty, so why should I be treated like a prisoner?" Yeah. Um. In protest, uh, hang on. In protest at having to wear prison uniform and what he interpreted to be breaches of prison rules. This is disgusting. Hang on. Nielsen threatened to protest his remand conditions by refusing to wear any clothes. Because of this threat, he was not allowed to leave his cell. Lovely. So he, ba- I think he was naked, I think, for a lot of it. No. Yep. This is disgusting. On the 1st of August, Nielsen threw the contents of his chamber pot out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. Nice. So covered them in shit, basically. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with him? I don't know. The incident resulted in Nielsen being found guilty on the 9th of August for assaulting prison officers and subsequently spending 56 days in solitary confinement. Ugh. So the thing is, he was convict. He was, uh, like, arrested and um, he was found guilty for assaulting police officers before he was found guilty of murdering 16 people so how was that how was that trial brought like it was probably like an internal thing because it wasn't like a brought to like court yeah okay 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 um on the 26th of may nielsen was committed to uh to stand trial at the old bailey on five counts of murder and two of attempted murder a sixth murder murder charge was later added right. right throughout his committal hearing he was represented by a solicitor named ronald moss whom he previously dismissed as his legal representative on the 21st of April. Before Moss was reappointed to the role after Nielsen had complained to magistrates, he had been afforded no facilities which he could mouth his own defence. So he basically was trying to pull a Ted Bundy. He wanted to represent himself. Really? Yeah. And this poor Moss guy, I think he hired and fired him about three or four times. (laughs) It's like it was like fucking hot and cold. Like one minute it's like, yeah, be be my solicitor, and the next minute it's like, no, I don't want you anymore. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Um, Moss was to remain Nielsen's legal representative until July 1983, when Nielsen again expressing his intention to defend himself discharges him. So he fires him again. Fuck's sake. <laughs> until the fifth of August, when Nielsen once again reappointed Moss. <laughs> Your heart in your cold. Yes, in your... 
Um, initially, Nielsen had intended to plead guilty on char on each charge of murder at his upcoming trial. So he basically was like, uh, he was gonna yeah, he's like guilty because then he'll get a lesser charge, all this shit. And um, with Nielsen's full consent, Moss had fully prepared his defense. So basically, they'd had the discussion. He was gonna plead guilty. Yeah. Moss knew what he was gonna be talking about when he was like doing all of his opening statement and all this shit. Mm-hmm. Five weeks before his trial, Nielsen again dismissed Moss ah. and opted instead to be represented by Ralph Heems, who, um, upon upon whose advice, Nielsen agreed to plead not guilty by diminished responsibility. So, um, this re- Heems guy was trying was basically said to Nielsen, plead not guilty. And we'll we'll go on the like diminished responsibility thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the defendants argue that although they broke the law, so so this is what this means. So defendants argue that although they broke the law, so they accept the fact they've done something yeah. wrong, they should not be held fully criminally liable for doing so, as their mental functions were diminished or impaired at the time of committing the crime. Right. So they're basically saying, so he's basically saying, right, I'm completely fine, like 95% of my time, but the 5% when I'm with someone in my flat and I decide to strangle them, there was something wrong with my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> right. Some people do believe that shit. I know. So, um, Nielsen was brought to trial on the 24th of October 1983 and he was charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried at Old Bailey before Mr Justice Croom Johnson and pleaded not guilty on all charges. Right. The primary dispute dispute (laughs) between the prosecution prosecuting and defence counsel was not whether Nielsen had killed the victims but his state of mind before the killing before um, oh for god's sake but his state of mind before and during the killings yeah the prosecuting counsel Alan Green QC argued that Nielsen was sane in full control of his actions and had killed with premeditation the defence counsel, Ivan Lawrence QC, argued that Nielsen suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and should therefore be convic- convicted only of manslaughter. Right. Okay. Um, um, the prosec- prosecution counsel opened the case for the Crown by... Dis- by describing the events of February 1983, leading to the identification of human remains in the drains of Cranley Gardens and Nielsen's subsequent arrest. The discovery of three dismembered bodies in his property, his detailed confession, his leading investigation the, his leading investigators to charred bone fragments of 12 further victims at Melrose Avenue and the evan- efforts he had taken to conceal his crimes. In a tactful reference to the primary dispute between opposing counsel at the trial, Green closed the opening speech with an answer Neil had given to police in response to a question as to whether he needed to kill. At the precise moment of the act, I believe I am right in doing the act. The count- to counteract this argument, Green added, The Crown says that even if there was mental abnormality, there was not sufficient. that was not sufficient to diminish... Subst- sub- substantially 
substantially. His responsibility for these killings. So basically, he's just trying to get away with it. Fucker. I know. Little fucker. So um, the first witness to testify for the prosecution was Douglas Stewart, who testified that in November 1980, he'd fallen asleep in a chair in Nilsson's flat, only to wake to find his ankles bound to a chair and Nilsson strangling him with the ties he pressed his knee into Stewart's chest. Successfully overpowering Nilsson, Stewart testified that Nilsson had then shouted, Take my money! This, the prosecution... prosecution attested reflected Nielsen's rational cool presence of mind in that he hoped to be overheard by other tenants. Mm -hmm. Upon leaving Nielsen's residence, Stuart had reported the attack to police, who in turn questioned Nielsen, noting conflicting details in accounts given by both men. Police had dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel. Upon cross-examination, the defence counsel sought to undermine Stuart's credibility, pointing to minor inconsistencies in the testimony. The fact he had consumed much alcohol on the night in question and suggesting his memory had been selectively magnified as he previously sold his story to the press. So that was the witness that I said who, were, yeah. who basically he, his whole thing, even though it did happen, it was like stricken off because he'd sold his story to the press. Yeah. But also as well, um, I there was a guy. So in the tapes bit on Netflix, there was a guy who worked with him in, when he was in the Met Police. Right. And he actually, so this I can't remember what his name was, but he recognised Nielsen when he on this particular occasion. So when they when they at the time of the guy reporting him to the police, and then he, like Nielsen, like oh it's lovers quarrel. The guy that was sort of booking him or doing the statements yeah. recognised him. And that guy at the time said that he needs to be locked up because there's something wrong with him. Yeah. And it, yeah. I think was that not was that not in the TV series? Might have been. Because I think I already knew that. Yeah, but it was definitely in the tapes because they interviewed the guy. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's he. Um, Yeah, I'm going to kind of... There's a lot There's a lot of information in this, and it is so a lot. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to go straight on to the imprisonment because, uh, again, a lot of it's all repetitive. It's yeah. all repeated. Um, following his conviction, Nielsen was transferred to Her Majesty's Prison, Wormwood Scrubs, to begin his sentence. As a Category A prisoner, he was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates. Nielsen did not lodge an appeal, accepting that the Crown's case, that he had the capacity to control his actions and that he killed with premeditation, so that's what he was convicted of, yeah. was essentially correct. So he basically, I remember in the tapes, he was like, he was like, so yeah, I've been convicted, so they might, it must be correct. <laughs> it's like, mate... <laughs> Um, he further elaborated on the day of his conviction that he took an enormous thrill from the social sed- seduction, the getting the friend back, the decision to kill the body and its disposal. Nielsen also claimed drunkenness was the sole reason at least two of the of his attempted murders were unsex- unsuccessful. So mm. he's saying that because he was too pissed on two of them. They were unsuccessful. Yeah. I don't think that's true, but... I know. 
In December 1983, Nilsson was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade by an inmate named Albert Moffat, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Oh, lovely. Afterward, he was briefly transferred to um, Her Majesty's Prison in Parkhurst before being transferred to Her Majesty's Prison Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, Nielsen was transferred to a vulnerable prisoner unit at Her Majesty's Prison for Sutton upon concerns for his safety. He remained there until 1993 when he was transferred to HMP Whitemore, again at his as a Category A prisoner and with increased segregation from other inmates. The minimum term of his 25-year imprisonment to which Nielsen was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life tariff by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December 1994. This ruling ensured Nielsen would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. Um, In 2003, Nielsen was again transferred to HMP Full Saturn where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, Nielsen translated books into Braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing as he allowed to was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. Nielsen remained at HM Full Sutton until his death on the twelfth of May nineteen uh, two thousand eighteen. Oh, so it's not long ago that he died mm-hmm. then. Yeah, so, but the thing is as well, he did so much stuff. So in 1992, he, uh, Central Television conducted an interview with Nielsen as part of the programme Viewpoint 1993 Murder in Mind. Really? Uh-huh. Um, which focused upon offender profiling. Yeah. And it was a four-minute section in which Nielsen frankly discussed his crime, which initially scheduled to be broadcast on the 19th of January 1993. Lovely. But the Home Office sought to ban the interview from being broadcast on the grounds that they had not guaranteed permission for Central Te- Television to conduct interviews with Nielsen. Oh. I know. Um, he also wrote a memoir, like he had an unpublished book. He had, um, there was another guy, I can't remember what his name is. He had another guy that was writing um, a book. Uh, yeah, he had another guy that was writing a book. He wrote his own book, um, but was unpublished. Yeah. Loads of stuff went on. Um, But he died of a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. Oh, lovely. I know. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I know, exactly. But yeah, that is Dennis Nielsen. And how fucked up he is. Oh. But yeah. That is really... This, I'm glad we've done two parts because that is a very long... It is a long one. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of information. Almost three hours. Oh, sorry everyone. <laughs> Almost three hours. I don't, blame, I don't blame anyone if they don't listen because it's a lot. It is a lot. But it's a very fascinating case, I think. Yeah. And I find it very odd how he just didn't find him like he's like oh i'm not guilty yeah until, uh, like i'm innocent until proven guilty what a dickhead i know anyway well, guys yeah. that is the end of episode 19 is it 19 yeah wow 
Well, thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you... Sunday. On Sunday. And here's a little trailer from uh, Sipping With Snapped as we might be uh, doing a feature on on their podcast. And yeah. Their, and them on us as well. Well, yeah. So we'll speak to you on Sunday. See yeah. you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone. If you are looking for an upbeat true crime podcast sprinkled with cocktails and movie quotes, guess what? You found it. I'm Mary the mom. And I'm Kylie the daughter. And we are the hosts of Sipping with Snap Day True Crime Podcast. Join us every Wednesday as we tell you a story about someone who has snapped. So find Sipping with Snap a True Crime Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Chaz and Lou Show. Keep up to date with all the latest by connecting with us on socials by searching at The Chaz and Lou Show. Join us every Sunday and Wednesday as we discuss all things true crime, scary and things that scare us shitless. That's here on The Chaz and Lou Show.